Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Well, it's a it's a warm summer day. Yeah. Right? Oh, oh yeah, right. Um, Sorry. Uh, a lot of things have happened over the past couple months. I'm too I'm tired to keep this going. <laughs> okay. Here's the deal. We're recording this a solid like eight weeks before you hear it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so that's two months. There might be any number of things that have happened in our lives, in the world. Yeah. The world could have ended. Remember uh, in Avengers 2 could have been terrible. Could have been. Although, yeah. Here's the thing. By this time, ever I'm be, I'm immediately being topical. I apologize. Uh, by this time, everyone knows if Avengers two is good or not. But uh, right now, there's just a lot of early reviews or like early like uh, tweets being sent out by people that saw like a screening of it, and and it's like, oh, the buzz looks really good. But the way that the people are talking about it sounds like that that bullshit that uh, <laughs> like when we go to Comic Con or WonderCon and like the person like. So we're recording, again, eight weeks before. So you and I recently saw Batman versus Robin, and uh-huh. the, the, when the woman introduced it, she's like, it's a, uh, it's like, it's a little creepy, a little heartfelt, and totally action-packed. And it's just, now she's a publicist. She's required to sp- <laughs> right. talk like that. Uh, but it's like some of these critics' tweets oh, are man. like that. And I'm like... See, now you're throwing fire. You're, th- you're throwing flames here. I guess so. I'm, Yeah retroactively yeah so you should be ashamed of yourselves are in the tank they're on the they're or, just repeating the company line the talking points they were handed at the screening or maybe screening. the movie is so good that they see themselves like i'm 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 a soldier in the army of uh avengers age of ultron so do you want to take bets like what's the what percentage do you think at the time that people are hearing this what is the percentage chance percentage that i david backs have seen Avengers zero percent zero percent chance I go zero okay I think there's it's probably closer to zero than a hundred yeah but I am I do want to see it I oh just okay know, I just know because it's Joss Whedon but I know yeah yeah well so we'll see people can comment in the in the uh, you know in, in the comment section here uh, they'd be like uh, well, I guess no it's too they just say whether or not you were right yeah absolutely. it's too late for them to yeah yeah oh probably, this is fun. Probably a good chance I haven't seen it, but I do want to see it. Now, okay. uh, hang on. Now, we do have to pay some bills. So Should we hang do that on. right away? Absolutely. All right. This episode is sponsored by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. There are a number of great movies movies available on Mubi, including The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, written and directed by John Cassavetes and starring Ben Gazzara. Um, As listeners know, I'm a big John Cassavetes fan, and this, I think, is one of his... three best i think woman under the influence is probably his best and then i think shadow uh, pardon me faces is right behind it but i think killing a chinese bookie is a little it's a bit more plot heavy it's not heavy on plot but there's more plotting to it and there's something of a there's kind of a film noir element and so it's it's interesting to see somebody with the stylings of a john cassavetes uh tackle a genre and bring himself to it and wonderful performances uh I don't know. I can't. I can't talk enough about the movie. If you haven't seen it, check it out. And uh, and if you can, uh, do it through movie. Uh, there is. Uh also, a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship to redeem now. 
Okay. All right. Uh, well, let's. Why, why don't you? Uh, uh, oh, okay. Why don't you, the listener, strap uh, in? Yeah, yeah, and take a glance down at your MP3 player. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's what people have. Or phone. Right. Could be a point. phone, but maybe listening on a uh, on a Pono. If you're a big uh, Neil Young fan, <laughs> um, are you thinking of Ponyo? Because yeah, you're you're getting that, ahead of yourself. No, no, no. Is that isn't that what it's called? Neil Young's like I MP3 have no player? idea. It looks like a Toblerone. <laughs> Neil Young invented an MP3 player. He, he probably didn't invent it himself, but he uh, I don't know financed a new MP3 player that has like I like the uh, idea that he created. And it's like you know, <laughs> yeah, and like an like a. Uh, an emptied out like corn cob or something like that and just filled with technology <laughs> and but it's shaped like a toblerone so that's which is ridiculous because how you're supposed to like you can't you can slip your phone or your ipod or yeah. other or your zoom or what have you yeah. into your pocket a toblerone i don't know my guess yeah. is if you're if you're <laughs> if you're carrying around the mp3 player created by uh who is it again? Neil Young. Neil Young. For a minute, I was like, Neil Diamond, that's not right. Uh, you want people to see it. You want to have it out. Carrying it out. You're walking like, around holding it high above your head. Hey, everybody. As you're rocking out. Yeah. <laughs> rest never sleeps. And by the way, between the time of recording and the time of airing, that thing is going to blow up and everyone's going to have one. <laughs> okay. And so, we're going to look like, uh, yeah. like the guys being like, oh, movies will never be anything. Theater, that's where it is. Yeah, exactly. So glance down at your Battleship Retention branded pono player which i'm sure we've come out with by then we've, we've released a skin Absolutely. for the pono yeah um and notice what number episode you're listening to and notice the fact that the number of the episode ends in a zero and yet is not divisible by 50 and therefore is a profile episode mm-hmm. so uh we're very lucky this is part of the reason um we're uh recording early to have a, a guest who's a uh an expert yeah, <laughs> already shaking his head. An Which enthu- is to say, he's seen all the- Yeah, there an, we an go. Enthusiast uh, of our, of today's profile subject, um, Tyler. Why don't you introduce uh, our guest? Okay, so uh, he's from Chicago. He's one of our writers. He and actually, uh, I don't know how long it was. A few years ago, at this point, that you uh, that he wrote a series about uh, the subject of today's episode and so we and he was going to be uh he's based out of uh, chicago which is uh you know near and dear to to our hearts david sure um and uh he happened to be visiting los angeles and so we thought oh let's do this uh because this is a filmmaker that we can't uh that neither of us can really speak about with too much authority and we thought what a fun what an exciting opportunity and uh and but yeah he's been writing for us for at this point several years his name is aaron pinkston I've seen the movies. Does that count? Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, that makes you okay good. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> how are you? They, how, uh, does that mean they pay me for? Yeah. <laughs> By they, do you mean we? The answer is no. No, not you. <laughs> okay. The world. Absolutely. Um, how's, how, how are you liking Los Angeles? I'm liking it a lot. I mean, I figured I would. Uh, this is my first time in California at all. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah, I've had a good time. I drove... Uh, Mulholland Drive yesterday, uh, listening to Injustice for All uh-huh. on my rental car, so made the turns a little more exciting. Yeah. I've seen some uh, big Hollywood stars. Oh, yeah? yeah? I mean, I know who you saw, but why don't you tell me? Are you looking at a couple, a couple of them right now? <laughs> yeah. These are two. Chalk them up. Uh, I saw Johnny Depp uh, oh, on Hollywood that. Boulevard. Wow. Um, yeah. It what? was weird, though. He was dressed like Captain Jack Sparrow, which... Oh, I see. Yeah. And weirder, though, I saw... I saw Johnny Depp again, like half uh-huh. hour later, 
but he was just as Edward Scissorhands. On oh, man. Wow. It was weird. That yeah, guy yeah. is committed. Hollywood's a crazy place. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I did see Beck, the yeah. real life Beck. Wow. Uh, and I saw Rob Zombie uh, with his wife, Sherry Moon. Uh, both had Both had movies in theaters, so they both had good taste, I guess, if anything. What were you <laughs> seeing? Uh, well, I saw Beck at the Egyptian uh, there was a double feature film noir. I think uh, no, Noir City Fest is going on right now. Mm-hmm. So, and then uh, I saw Rob Zombie and his wife uh, at uh, Cine Family, where they were showing The Freshman, Harold Lloyd, which I know is one of your favorites, Tyler. Absolutely. I did not know I had so much in common with Rob Zombie. Yeah, Robert. Robert Zombie. Yeah, Robert sorry. Zombie. <laughs> Show him some respect. Yeah. yeah. Sir Robert Zombie. <laughs> so, yeah, two two musicians. Uh, haven't seen any movie stars, I guess, but two Rob Zombie's a movie director, He's though. He's a director, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Actually, th- I feel like I think of him more now as a director than I do as a musician. I feel like there's probably a generation of people who, like, are, you know, I guess just art fans in general, whether it be music or movies or whatever, who think of him as a guy who makes movies. I I haven't thought of him myself as a musician in a long time. Kind of like how there's a whole generation of like teenagers who think of Jared Leto first and foremost as the guy from Thirty Seconds to Mars. Absolutely, absolutely. That's like, true though. That like that's you think really so? weird. No, I'm sure it's true. I'm sure it's true. And then it's like, like oh, think about- look at him. He got a. For his little side acting project, he got an Oscar. Yeah. That's fun. But think about like the space between his, it took uh, uh, almost six years. He's very <laughs> particular about that. Yeah. That's a story that goes back a year and a half, or I guess a year and eight months at this point, mm-hmm. um, uh, depending on when you're listening to this. Um, so yeah, six years. You look at uh, a teenager. If that's if that's like twelve to eighteen, like that's those are formative years where you develop. Your, your your taste in music is and then if your taste in music is 30 seconds to mars hopefully you will then outgrow it um but like that's a long time for a teenager mm-hmm. so i i do think that yeah people who are like 18 19 year old 30 seconds to mars fans do think of him as the lead singer of that band first they're a pretty popular band though so i mean yeah if you're not into movies i think that's a perfectly legitimate Although he Thank will be in the Suicide Squad movie, he's playing the Joker. Did you yeah. see that picture? I did. Of him with the camera? I did. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's, <laughs> right. I know you and I, we try not to be suckered right. in by publicity, but right. uh, it's pretty cool. And also to the listeners, that happened nine weeks yeah, ago. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the film has come out, and he's been nominated for a second Oscar by now. You know Wait, what? That, the film has not come out. No, no not at all. <laughs> I'm not going to look at that picture uh, until this episode comes out. Okay. So, <laughs> oh, that'll be fun. I'll be fresh. Okay, well, I was going to say let's get into it, but uh, you do have presents for I us. Do, I do, yeah. I do as far as I'm it. concerned, this is the into it we need to get. <laughs> and if we have to you know, sit through an hour of him yammering about some fucking anime, uh, then, then I'll do it. Um, I do. It's, it's become one of my favorite parts of listening to the show, uh, is the gifts that are sent in and, and, and acutely <laughs> described. Uh, it feels like th- I got them too. You know? So I figured, uh, you know, my generous friends here. Oh, watch out! Let me be on this thing. Oh uh, no, you, you, you though, David. I, I'm not oh, yeah, going to yeah. describe them. That's your job. Yeah, this oh, is David's okay. favorite thing. I'll Go in there. there. There's two things in there. I think you can figure out whose is whose. I can already tell. Oh, I hope we don't get in a fight over this. No, I. I this one I want. I don't think you do. <laughs> yeah. This. Is an Iron Maiden coffee mug with the cover of Killers on it. It's got Eddie brandishing the uh, the, uh, the the bloodied uh, hatchet, and uh, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna use it. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw away some coffee mug maybe my parents gave me 
there for you go. high school graduation or whatever, just to we, make room. We love and, and are proud of you, David. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> fuck you. I got, got to put Iron Maiden up there on the shelf. I this can't think amazing. of anything more Iron Maiden-y than throwing away the mug your parents gave you <laughs> to embrace Iron Maiden. I feel like that's the beginning of a music video, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, I'm going to use that. Now, David opens the presents, so right. I'm just going to sit here. And okay. David, you yep. Well, this one is... This. Okay. I have a bit of a... Oh, man. I have like tendonitis in my arm, help? so I cannot use my left arm very well. Oh, I thought you were seven. playing... I thought you were doing a character thing. That's no. actually true? Yeah, I, it okay. hurts. <laughs> okay. Oh, this is a big book. This is a big book. Whoa. And it's about Robert Altman. Oh, my gosh. That's Catherine exciting. Reed Altman and Julia Daniolo Villan, introduction by Martin Scorsese. That is a giant book. Yeah, I yeah. think the kids call these a coffee table book. All right. I have a coffee table. There, yeah. And what I like about <laughs> it is how... Uh, how subtle it is. <laughs> you mean uh, that it looks like the American flag? Absolutely. Oh, watch out. <laughs> uh, commentary. Um, oh, my. Yeah. I was Actually, it's funny because I, when I walked in today, I was like, I didn't want to say anything. But I was like, Tyler's coffee table is kind of embarrassingly bare. That's true. It, can need, it clearly needs something. I've been it taking usually, notes. <laughs> <laughs> it usually uh, has a lot of, uh, I wish I was joking, usually has like a lot of peanut shells on it. <laughs> Like, 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 like a Lone Star Steakhouse <laughs> floor. Yeah. I've, uh, you know, sometimes I'll get into, Aaron, thank you so much for this. I do appreciate it. You're welcome. Listeners, take note. So, uh, yeah, I find I get into these little, like, phases where there's one thing that I will, if I could, I would eat every day. And by the way, it's in my power to do so, and I often will, uh, for about, I'm going to say four months, maybe uh-huh. six. And it's like, this is the thing I want more than anything in the world. Tim Tams, right? It is all, that one never goes away. There's, there, you know, that's evergreen. But um, peanuts in the shell that I can just eat at home, like nice and salted. Right. Uh, that has been my, my passion for, uh, for the last uh, few months, and that'll probably go away. Uh, it's often, it is often ribs. I will go like nine months without eating ribs. And huh. then suddenly for three months, it's all I want. You had some ribs the other night. I remember. That's right. That's uh, right. Now I wonder what the chance is that by the time this episode goes, <laughs> oh, goes up, that you're still on your rib kick. Maybe, maybe <laughs> I, uh, but you know what people like, that's not as people think of that as weird. Like, Oh, you eat the same thing every day. But the, like with foods, like I eat eggs for breakfast most mornings, hmm. but that's normal. Like no one thinks that's weird. Like. That you eat eggs, that yeah, I eat eggs, true. like because that's just what people do, and I snack on almonds constantly, which now I have a guilty conscience about. Why? Because okay, you know we're in the middle of a drought. I, I, I'm assuming it's over by the time people are hearing. This. Yeah, we got it worked out. <laughs> we did get a little bit of rain the other day, so I imagine that bought us another couple of years, right? I think that's so. how it works. Yeah, um, but uh, you know, people are telling you like, oh, you know. Put a brick in the back of the toilet. Take shorter showers. You know, don't leave leave the water running while you're brushing your teeth. I guess that's helpful, but it's a drop in the bucket because mm-hmm. more like more than three quarters of California's water usage goes to agriculture, and about like half of that is almonds. So, oh really? Yeah. So my almond consumption is contributing directly to the drought. But it's probably helping the economy as well, right? Uh, maybe. Yeah. It all works out. I'm sure. Here's what here's in my neighborhood. Here's what where it all goes. Even though, so I'm part. I have I'm part of a homeowners association, and so there have been notices of like, hey, seriously, we're in the middle of a, we're in the middle of a drought. And this was posted before like the official declaration of of a drought. And it's like, stop washing your cars every single uh, week. 
or sometimes twice a week, apparently. Uh-huh. Like, people would just hose down their this cars. California. People are very, like, that's a part of their identity to have a nice car, a I, nice looking car. I guess so. I mean, it's something I've never cared that much about, unless I'm driving, like, you know, a terrible clunker or something like that. But even so, it's like, for me, it's like when I was driving my 95 Explorer in 2008, and it's like, okay, this is causing some trouble. The issue was not that it was dirty. It's that it's old. And so I should just get a new car and then be okay with the dust. I don't know. It's it's I it's not my place to judge. I I enjoy taking a nice long shower. I've been trying to shorten it yep. where I can. Uh tough to do cuz I do my best thinking in the shower. Um and so which is apparently a real thing. Oh. Um and it's all the uh, steam. Is that what it is? I don't know. It just it clears out my sinuses, which is where my brain is. Well, it's connected anyway. Yeah, it's close. So, it's it's in really the general close. vicinity. <laughs> it's so, all in my head. So um, when you go back to Illinois, right. I hope you won't take for granted that you're not in a drought. You know. Well, I was wondering why I've been so thirsty <laughs> all week since I've been here. I guess that makes sense. Well, should uh, should we get into it? Shall we? Let's get into it, shall we? Okay. All right. Um, first, though. Oh, I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com, oh, yeah. which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors. And uh, they're very stylish and very colorful, and they sound great. Uh, I use them. Tyler uses them. I don't know if Aaron does. He should. I do. Oh, good. There you go. Uh, but uh, they're already at a low, low price. But if you go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension, you get that for one third off and no shipping charges. That's tweakedaudio.com slash pretension. Now let's get into it. Shall we? All right. Who's our... Uh, well, you know what, Aaron? Why don't you tell us who we're profiling? Listeners, Even though people know because it's on their ponos. Yeah. Listeners, get ready to listen to Aaron. I hope you enjoyed Aaron Uh-oh. for the last few minutes because you're going to get him for about eh, 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, well, just before uh, starting the re- recording today, I ate myself a nice brisket sandwich. So uh-huh. if I pass out at some point, <laughs> then uh, at least you died happy. Call 911. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we're going to talk about Hayao Miyazaki think i'm pronouncing that correctly that's that's how i've heard it yes. yeah about that's yeah. how you pronounce that sometimes i hear hi oh <laughs> nailed it that's only when i'm talking to ed mcmahon okay is he dead did he die i like no idea oh i feel bad i feel like a long time ago <laughs> yeah, but okay sorry i don't know <laughs> One of those okay. well, make fun of dead people if, though. if he, i know but if he's alive and i think he's dead that's an that's if that's he hasn't he will by the time this comes out oh that's true yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's this damn drought <laughs> What if he was like, this goes up on whatever Sunday. What if like that Saturday, Ed McMahon was murdered? (laughs) And we don't know. Oh, boy. Then I think we have to go find the killer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's the only way to absolve ourselves of this situation. All right. So we're not talking about Ed McMahon. We'll do the Ed McMahon profile episode somewhere. Damn right we will. Actually, we've already recorded it. It's coming out in six months. (laughs) Thanks, Craig. (laughs) Uh, Let's tell us about Hayao Miyazaki. Sure. Well, uh, he's a prolific Japanese uh, anime director, probably the most world famous, I would say. What makes anime? Is it literally just anything that's animated that's from Japan is anime? Uh, I would imagine so. Okay. Uh, I'm far, uh, you you introduced me as an expert. I I am far from an expert, especially when it comes to the history of anime. Uh, My anime experience pretty much... And uh, starts and stops with Studio Ghibli. So, uh, never watched Dragon Ball Z, 
Never watched Cowboy Bebop. All the other famous. I ones. watched Cowboy Bebop. I, I did too. Yeah, yeah. and that. Heard what about, what about uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion? I've seen one of the Evangelion uh, okay. Evangelion movies, the second one. So what? I was very confused in regards <laughs> to the definition of anime. A moment ago, I, I acted dismissive and reductive of Miyazaki's film, saying it is fucking anime. Now, well, you've also slept very little. That's true. Yes, but I, that's, I was trying to make a joke. Because I guess I didn't think of I don't think of his films as anime. And by the way, I don't mean to insult anybody that likes anime. Anime, it's like really great. Uh, but I view it based on the stuff that people designate anime. It always seems action oriented. Yeah, the, and I his mean, stuff is not the f- like the fanboy anime or like when I was in college, we had a great video store. I think it's still it's still up and running. Uh, Good for them. I uh, had uh, an entire wall of anime, and I, I highly doubt Miyazaki was in that collection. He may have been. Mm-hmm. The other Ghibli movies may have been, too. So I certainly understand that. Uh, there are some of his films that are a little closer, and we'll get into that, I guess, okay. uh, closer into that action anime. Some of his best films and some of his least best films, because uh, they're all good. There you go. Uh, at least I enjoy them all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, flaws flaws may be in in some of them um but yeah i think i mean in my in my uh, unknowledgeable uh experience of of anime and whole i I can maybe it's uh very american of me to think of anything animated from japan to be animated in the same bucket but uh, so before we jump into it i will ask you know so you've seen all of his films uh, all of his features, yeah. All of his features, pardon me. Uh, at what point did you start watching, and we'll get more into the film specifically when we get there, but what film started you on it, and how old were you, and what attracted you to him? Uh, well, the first I saw was Spirited Away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually when I was in, in college. Uh, one of my favorite things to do was to go to that said video store and uh, they had very good specials during the week of like dollar movies and things like that. So uh, I, I believe I rented uh, Spirited Away. I, I don't even remember how I had heard of it, uh, but I feel like I had heard that it was good. Of course, it won the Oscar a few years before that. So this would have been like 2001 or 2002. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it would have been fairly new on DVD at that point. Uh, and then I hadn't seen another Miyazaki until I wrote about the Ghibli series for the for Battleship. Interesting. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, during that, I think it was like 15 or 16 films that I wrote about. Uh, the only of Ghibli I had seen was Spirited Away at the time. But wow. since I've seen uh, seen all of Miyazaki's, uh, there were two of his films that weren't that I didn't see during the series and, and didn't write about. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, that was it. And one thing that, that tends to happen when we do these profile episodes is Early on, we wind up making certain observations about whether it be a director or actor or whatever. We make certain general observations that we've observed by looking at, at their work. Mm-hmm. And then as we go through like each of their films or performances or what have you, uh, we say, like, this is how this fits into the larger, for lack of a better term, thesis about this person. So before we get more specific, let's, let's talk a little bit about, in general, who Miyazaki is and the types of movies he makes and what he maybe like what you like about him, but also just kind of the, the motifs that he returns to over and over again. And then we can talk about the specific films. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I think there are two basic kind of films that he that he makes, and I haven't really been able to put my finger on it exactly exactly what the differences are, and then the films that kind of go between both of these things, uh, quite how to categorize them. Um, most all of his movies are directed for a younger audience. I think primarily, even though they do appeal to adults as well, uh, there's a lot of young protagonists in his films. I think there's only one or two of his movies in his entire career where the main protagonist was an adult, wasn't a child. Uh, and many of them are female uh, mm. children uh, that lead the films. Uh, so I think especially for a very old man uh, – uh, that can that's a little interesting how he mm -hmm. he writes films and directs makes movies that are totally outside of his perspective but i think because of his he has obviously very creative and has a great imagination uh and just builds great characters uh that it works um the the two sort of different films that i that i've kind of thought about that you have those more traditional quote unquote traditional anime action films uh and something like um Nausicaa, the valley of the wind uh which was his second film um porco rosso is is a little bit into that princess mm -hmm. mononoke is probably the main of his uh, mm -hmm. most most important most important and most well-loved of his primarily action films. A lot of these movies are very serious. There's not a lot of humor to them. Uh, even though they still deal with young protagonists, uh, they are much scarier. They have um, a lot of times uh, very important themes around the environment and nature uh, and both the good side of nature and the evil side of nature. Uh, and then the other is his more lighthearted movies, Things like Kiki's Delivery Service and Ponyo, uh, which are definitely much more geared to children. Uh, mm -hmm. They're usually funnier, um, usually a little bit more uh, whimsical. Uh, and then there's sort of movies that fit both, like Spirited Away, which at times is very scary, at times is very whimsical, is very funny, uh, but also very serious. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I think we'll get into spirited away but i, I think yeah. that's his best that's my favorite certainly um oh that'll be a fun thing to keep an eye on uh, what, what our favorites are uh should we just start uh should we jump in what's the first feature we're going to talk about uh the first is uh a, a movie that's probably his least seen uh, i had certainly never heard of it um before watching it uh, i i made a point to watch it before coming on it's called the castle of cagliostro hmm. from 1979 he's got a lot of castle movies he has like a castle trilogy yeah yeah though i don't think any of them were really that similar in terms okay. of uh, i guess spirited away to the castle right uh -huh. the, i guess i guess my you, neighbor the castle <laughs> the i guess castle, the castle rises yeah. <laughs> many directors i guess have trilogies that don't uh -huh. really have much anything in common um this movie is 1979 yeah it's so it predates ghibli which uh all of all but two of his movies uh were made under studio ghibli though the second one which we'll talk about next uh happened right around the same time that Ghibli was formed. So 
I think most people just kind of throw it in there mm-hmm. uh, with the Ghibli films. But uh, this is based on a, uh, a manga and a movie series, TV series, uh, following a group of thieves. Uh, the main one named is Lupin, and he's the main character of the movie. It's a really bizarre movie. Uh, it, it's, it's the least like what Miyazaki became. I think part of that is because of all of the movies yeah. that of all, yeah, of all of the movies that that uh, that he wrote and directed, this is the one that doesn't really if you if you trust in the auteur theory, uh, this one he's definitely not the main driving force of the film. Of course, it was his first movie. He didn't have the cred. It's I think, an adaptation. Yeah, and it's well. it is an adaptation. He he did he. Worked, I think, in uh, adaptations again, um, not so directly, maybe. Um, but this one definitely feels like he's he got his first chance to really uh, helm a feature film, and he was kind of working his voice out. Um, that said, it's 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 a it's a weird, funny uh, movie. Definitely worth seeing, especially if you're a Miyazaki completist. Uh, it has. A lot of stuff going on. There are uh, there are thieves. Uh, there are uh, there's a princess held in the castle. Uh, very uh, uh, very anime sort of idea. Very Japanese video games and, and all that. Uh, Interpol plays a plays a role. Uh, there are gangsters. There are ninjas. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, booby traps. Uh, and, and the main villain kind of looks like Clark Gable, which is, is, this, one, uh, <laughs> is this movie readily available? Yeah, I, I saw it on Netflix. It, it, they have, they only have the disc and it's actually very funny. Uh, see if you remember this thing. I, I think this kind of goes to show how underseen this movie is, but the, the Netflix disc is one of those DVDs that are two sided uh-huh. and on yeah. one side is the special features oh, yeah. and on the yeah. other side is, uh, the main, the main film. So, uh, that was um, that was kind of fun. I but, put it in the wrong way at first, and I was like, "Ah, shit!" <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to take it out and put it back in. So. Um, but I, I guess we can move on to Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind because uh, I want to jump off a couple of things you said. Yeah, um, sure. I mean, you mentioned adaptation. Nausicaa, Nausicaa is a self-adaptation, right? It's based on his own comic, yeah, uh, or his own manga. I yeah, guess I guess it, it, it should be said that. Uh, if you're a big fan of Miyazaki, you, you know he did a lot of work on television, uh, a lot of work in comics and, and manga, and uh, did a lot of short films. Um, he was he's very much his legacy is is much more than than his uh, feature filmmaking. Uh, but we're a movie podcast, so I yeah. think we'll stick to that. <laughs> um, but another thing I want to talk about that you said about about the uh, the castle of Cagliostro is. Um, I mean, you listed, it was funny, you listed a lot of the things going on, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lots of different plot points and different characters and stuff. And that seems to be in, not in every one of his films, because some of them are a little more simple in their story, but that does seem to be a common thing. Not like both, both visually, there's a lot going on and there's just a lot of plot. If And if I have, uh, of all the um, Miyazaki films, um, well, I guess not counting The Wind Rises. Nausicaa is actually the one I've seen the most recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw it at Cine Family. Uh, and if I do have a complaint about it, it's that it does seem a little bit overly complex. Uh, yeah, and, and you see that a lot with his more serious films. And overall, I, I, I like those a little less. 
there, there's one primary ex- uh, exception to that. Uh, Nausicaa is a, a film that I, I definitely like. Uh, again, it, it does very much feel like an early film for Miyazaki. He hasn't quite figured out uh, how to uh, really tell a story that can be both impactful and just entertaining. Um, there's a lot of stuff in, in Nausicaa. Uh, it does get a little dull at times and it's hard to stick through and it's very long. Uh, yeah. But that, that said, it does have some of the stuff that will come to, uh, define him in terms of, um, like, uh, movement, the kineticism of his stuff. You know, uh, Nausicaa is a, that's the character's name, right? Yeah. Um, and she gets around via like a kite that's like how she travels uh, a lot yeah there's a lot of flying sequences that are uh very very filmic and and beautiful and flying yeah does become a major Mm -hmm. part of miyazaki's films of course culminating in his last movie which was about an airplane uh designer uh and obviously someone who he idolized uh yeah many of the movies have either characters who can fly characters who can like spawn into birds and, and things like that or um uh, machines that can fly uh and then speaking of machines there's also uh, you know i mean you talk about him as you know i, I think a lot of people think uh of spirited away and many more totoro and and stuff that is uh kid friendly but he can also be there's he has he has sometimes very large apocalyptic visions there's more than just menace in his movie there's movies there's there's huge world shattering uh, events in in imagery and the the i guess the climax of nausicaa which again by that point i was like not entirely sure i understood everything that was going on but emotionally and visually is really powerful stuff yeah and very bleak yeah it's uh it is a depressing uh depressing movie uh, especially because, like you said, it, it's this weird apocalyptic world that uh, is basically overrun with giant insects, like mm-hmm. horrifying creatures. Uh, and we're basically told that uh, it's humans' fault. Uh, and the humans that want to decide to take it upon themselves to rid the world of these massive beasts and this toxic forest. You come to find out that if they do that, they're actually basically committing suicide because that toxicity in the world is the only thing that makes the world remain pure. Uh, Sort of like, uh, I guess, I I don't know if he was specifically drawing on this, but uh, ideas about destroying wetlands, you know, move, changing them into parking lots. But those wetlands are important because even though they're they're gross and dirty and uh, aren't all that uh, pleasing to the eyes, they purify the water that we drink. So by destroying them, we're actually creating a bigger problem. Uh, Not to get political. Despite all this. I'm sorry. I was totally phased out. Despite all this. You said environment. um, Yeah, somehow this movie is still less ham-fisted in its environmental uh, 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 messages than Princess Mononoke will be. But we'll get to that Uh later. (laughs) Um, uh, What's what's next? Uh, I believe next is Castle in the Sky. Okay, because I'm looking at his IMDb. And there's yeah. Conan the Future Boy, the big giant robots resurrection. I think <laughs> that may, I think that may be a, a TV series okay. or shorts. I'm not sure. Okay, I have not seen that. So it sounds okay. fun though. 
Um, yeah, how about does. that title? <laughs> um, Castle in the Sky, which I can actually say uh, uh, is it might actually be the first Miyazaki that I saw, even though I haven't seen all of it. Mm. Uh, but um, when I was in high school, I had a friend who had lived in uh, Japan and had a VHS of this movie with no subtitles or dubs, and he was and uh, like he, he was like, "Do you want to watch this?" And I said, "Sure." And then I fell asleep. <laughs> So I, but the first glimpse of Miyazaki I ever had was uh, about twenty minutes of completely nonsensical to me, <laughs> Castle in the Sky, when I was about sixteen. Yeah, this uh, Castle in the Sky is is sort of an interesting movie. A lot of the tones are very opposite from Nausicaa. It's uh, though it has some more serious elements, and there's a lot of sort of backstory world building throughout, which are the least enjoyable parts of the film it's really like a madcap like very broad humor uh there are big chase sequences uh with a lot of comedy like people falling down you know really just like the the basic elemental uh building blocks of of comedy of people falling down uh there's a lot of that in there uh and it's very funny i i think uh if and i'm surprised sort of surprised it hasn't happened yet, but if Hollywood were to remake one of Miyazaki's movies, uh, live action, it might be castle in the sky, even though it's mm. not his best movie. It's not his most beloved movie, but I think it would maybe translate the best because it's especially the way movies are now, the big blockbusters. Uh, I mean, really it's, it's sort of a big blockbuster. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's exploding bridges, there's uh, big, huge set pieces, like I said, uh, very, very fun chase sequences, uh, even though it's it's not really an action anime like something like Nausicaa or um, uh, Princess Mononoke, which have these huge battles, uh, there's a lot of action in it. Um, there's also... Uh, part of the first glimpses of uh, Miyazaki's real sense of design. There's a lot of these strange flying contraptions. Of course, there's the title castle in the sky, which is this, uh, this castle that floats in the clouds and sort of the, the plot mechanic of, of these characters wanting to get to this castle too. Um, like I said, there's in the, in castle in the sky, there's a, very ponderous and, and a lot of backstory world building. Um, the, the main character is a young girl who, uh, doesn't realize she's the basically heir to this throne of this world that no longer exists, uh, this castle in the sky and she falls to earth. She's being chased by this group of pirates as well as the military. And she comes into contact with this young boy who takes it upon himself to help her, uh, get to get to the castle, partly because he wants to help her, partly because he thinks it would be really cool to, <laughs> to live in a castle in the sky. Um, it uh, kind of feels a lot like a quintessential like 1980s, like when we were kids, those sort of young action movies like Goonies. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, there's one of the one of the main groups of characters are these pirates. Uh, and led by a, a female, uh, like the mother, uh, very similar to, to the Goonies. So mm-hmm. I think, I don't know if there was some 
I guess they probably would have come around the same time. I don't exactly know when Goonies was released, but 1986 for Castle in the Sky would have been around the same time. So I don't know if there was direct reference. Yeah. So um, I don't know if there was any inspiration uh, on that or if it was purely coincidence. But uh, and this actually brings up I have I have a lot of questions about Miyazaki. I find him to be a fascinating filmmaker in a lot of ways. Um, One is that and and. And I wind up, I find him almost uh, enigmatic, which maybe I wouldn't if I'd seen more of his films. But, uh, like, how much is he influenced? And I don't know if he saw Goonies and was influenced by it, but, like, how much was he influenced by, uh, like, American filmmaking? And then let's go ahead and say animation as well. Because when you get to something like, for example, Spirited Away, there's a lot of Alice in Wonderland in there, which I recognize did not, you know, it did not originate in America and it wasn't first an animated film, but nonetheless, like I have to assume that he saw that and was very much uh, intrigued by that. Um, do you know, just in your, in your opinion, do you feel, or maybe you specifically know this, like, does he cite certain filmmakers or certain movies, uh, and maybe not even American, let's go with just like Western in general, uh, that he says like this had an infl- uh, an impact on the, the films that I make. I don't know anything specifically, but I think obviously, like okay. like you said, the Alice in Wonderland connection with Spirited Away. Uh, there's a uh, one of his films is very uh, closely related to The Little Mermaid, which is another classic story. So, yeah, obviously, I mean, there there must have been, and I I feel like maybe even animation and, and more so than any. And I I know animation is in the genre, but to make it simple to call it a genre, uh, filmmakers who make animated films, I think are, uh, more clue because I think they may have a community sort of feel, yeah. uh, especially nowadays, uh, that I think they are more, uh, inspired by films that come before, uh, and the films that their contemporaries are making. Um, so I, I, I would imagine that, yeah, he must be. And then I saw a film that is not officially his, but it's studio Ghibli and it's uh, the secret world of Arietti. Yes. And that is, of course, inspired right. by the borrowers. Right. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's something that I that I do find uh, fascinating is whether it be, you know, uh, uh, Magnificent Seven coming from Seven Samurai and then, you know, Kurosawa so uh, so often being influenced by the works of Dashiell Hammett and American Westerns and then in his work inspires that. I'm always fascinated when very different cultures just not like you could say pay homage. Like I don't view this in a negative sense at all. They're just inspired by one another constantly. Yeah. Well, I think uh, in animation and with Miyazaki, I I think obviously uh, Pixar is very, Mm -hmm. has, uh, and John Lasseter will tell you as much. He's probably the biggest Miyazaki fan. And he, all of the DVDs that, that I watched, um, from Miyazaki, John Lasseter's doing the the introduction, mm-hmm. uh, and then I think by the time Miyazaki gets to the end of his career, not to jump ahead, but I think Ponyo uh, specifically feels a lot like a Pixar movie, so it may have been going a little back the other way too. Well, should we move on to sure. uh, uh, my neighbor, my neighbor Totoro? Which yeah, is and I think probably my favorite. And we've hey, all seen, seen a lot this. more of these than I have. We've all seen this one, right? I feel bad. Have you seen I've not. You I've only okay. seen three of his movies, well, and one I don't remember very well. Why don't you start, David? <laughs> um, well, I guess to contrast what we were talking about with uh, other stuff, um, 
like the things we've just talked about before, so, so far, um, we've even comments on it, have uh, a whole lot of story. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas Totoro is, uh, I think, the first film that is, I think, more, it's emotionally focused and character focused first. And it actually has a rather simple story. It's a family, a father and his two daughters. Uh, the mother of the family is um, uh, in sort of long-term hospitalization or hospice care or something like that. Uh, it's been a long time. It's been over 10 years. Uh, so tell me if I'm getting stuff wrong, Aaron. But uh, they move out to the country essentially to be closer to the hospital with their, where their mother is. And um, I guess between work and visiting their mom, their dad is busy a lot of the time and they spend a lot of time playing in the woods where they meet magical creatures. Right. And that's essentially it, right? Yeah, basically. And and really the, the story that is put onto the movie is really the thing that really holds me back from really loving it. So that's really kind of interesting to think of the movie in that way, especially in the third act when they, the film really tries to put on some dramatic stakes uh, that really just, one, don't really seem to fit with what's come before, the, the great stuff in the film. And then two, they kind of cop out the ending. Uh, I won't spoil it for people who haven't seen it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's one of his most beloved films, I think, for obvious reasons. Uh, the character design of Totoro, the the two little Totoros, of course, Cat Bus, uh-huh. uh, are just uh, so much imagination, so much fun. Uh, they, he puts, um, uh, he doesn't overwrite those characters. Like, they just are what they are. And you as a viewer have to use uh use yourself to to kind of figure out how these how this world works uh it's i mean it's just complete imagination and creativity which uh i mean it's what makes that film great and why so many people love it and a lot of people i mean i i feel like most people probably this is their favorite yeah um and and it's uh there's also there's just something universal about um this idea of kids uh I mean, I, I, in this movie, it seems it's they're not. It's, this isn't Bridge to Terabithia, where this is a made-up world. Like Totoro actually exists within the reality of the movie, right? right? Yeah. But nevertheless, the idea of kids inventing their own world, magical world, sort of separate from uh, their 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 home life, you know, because maybe there's something you know uh, going on that is making their home life something they want to escape from or maybe just because being a kid sucks in a lot of ways um it, you know you're always under everyone else's thumb and you always have to follow directions and no one takes you seriously the idea of having uh, a place where it's just you and your siblings or friends or whatever and it's a world that you uh are if not in control of at least an equal in uh i i've always found those kind of stories i mentioned bridge of terabithia i love that movie um I find those stories really, uh, really touching. Yeah, I think the heart of the film, even though the characters are so great, is the the relationship between the two sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's the only Miyazaki movie that the main characters are siblings. Huh. Uh, of course, another uh, there's another Ghibli movie that is much more dark and depressing, <laughs> and that is uh, Two Siblings. Um, that's a very different movie. Uh, not not one of Miyazaki's, of course. Um, What's it called? 
What? It escapes me. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wait, is, it, is it Grave of the Fireflies? Yeah, it's Grave oh, of the Fireflies. Okay, yes. Yeah, which is, I've never seen it. It's supposed to be I've, one of the most like, devastating movies of all time. It's, yeah. And I've heard it's marvelous, though. Yeah, oh, it's, it's a great. It, I mean, it might be Ghibli's best movie. Hmm. Um, Takahata, the this, this sort of second in Ghibli, uh, doesn't have quite as much outstanding work as Miyazaki does, but there are a few of his films that. Uh, make me seriously consider if if he's my favorite of the two, including *Grip of the Fireflies*. Hmm. Um, anything more about Totoro? Um, oh yeah, um, I this um, this is I actually own the Blu-ray for this one, um, and so I watched a few of the special features, uh, specifically about the character design because that was the most one of the more interesting things of this movie for me. And there's actually some funny stories in there. Um, two things that I think would have made a much different film. Uh, one, apparently the original script didn't have the younger sister in oh. it. It was just the one, um, which I don't know how you could have much of any sort of dramatic stakes or, or really make that make the, make it a movie without both of them. And the other was that, Apparently, Totoro was first originally uh, in the very first scene of the movie. Uh, he doesn't come in until almost halfway through the, mm-hmm. the film, uh, which is would have really given it a different dynamic, I think, as well. Especially that first discovery scene where the younger sister, uh, when she finds the Totoro and the two the two little Totoros, how kind of fun that that moment is. And coming halfway through the the film, I think is is key in that should we move on to kiki's delivery service sure is this, this is a, this is i haven't seen this this, this is, is a much just more me. lighthearted one it is yeah it's probably his fluffiest movie uh it is very enjoyable um it's one of my favorites but it is it doesn't have a lot of the the meat that the other ones that some of his other better movies do and i think that's sort of the the defining line between them um there's really just basically no conflict at all in the movie, <laughs> which is which is strange. Uh, but what I, one of the I think reasons it does work for me is, uh, well, the the story is basically Kiki is a witch, a young witch. I think she's thirteen uh, years old, and so when she's, she's a teen witch. Yes. All right. Uh, and in this world where teen witches exist, <laughs> not gonna, uh, uh, they leave home basically for the first time and find themselves in the world. Uh, so it kind of, it, it really sort of feels like a movie about graduating from college. Uh, in my experience after graduating for college, uh, and just really not knowing what the hell to do with myself. Uh, I really see that in the movie. I don't know if that's sort of an intentional, uh, theme of the film, but, uh, I guess it doesn't matter if it is or not. Cause that's what I see in it. Uh, and, and, I connect with that a lot. Um, I, I had a question, and this is actually for both of you, because, David, you've seen more films than I have. So, Just in general? <clears throat> that's probably not true. It's probably about equal. <laughs> but as far as Miyazaki, you've seen more films okay. than I have. Um, and I guess this this could be a question about Studio Ghibli in general. So, okay, so I've seen three Miyazaki, and then I saw Secret, Secret World of Ariadne, and, mm-hmm. which I believe he had a hand in the screenplay. Yeah, and, I think he wrote it. I could be wrong, but... And one thing that I wanted to ask uh, is that just even in the films that I've seen, which is limited, I noticed that regardless of 
the story he is telling, and you've and you've mentioned that like some of his stuff is heavier, some of his stuff is lighter, some of his stuff is more uh, fantasy, some is more action oriented. Um, no matter what I've seen, the tone and the pacing tends to be the same. And I even saw, you know, uh, Porco Rosso. Or Rosso, I don't well, know how you say it. Is this a way, should we move on to Porco Rosso? Oh, is that the next one? That's the next one. Yeah, I, I did have one other thing, but... Okay, uh, well then I'll, I'll just uh, say this real quick, because it, it doesn't necessarily have to be about that, but, um, you know, it, uh, and that is one of his, you know, kind of more action-packed ones, but it is interesting that regardless of, at least, again, in what I've seen, and maybe, and you guys can speak more to this, that regardless of the story he's telling, it does always feel the same and i mean that in a good way like it you always feel like okay this is not going to be frenetic uh it's going to be even when somebody is flying even when the most fantastical thing is happening even when somebody's in danger uh it will still feel i can't even think of the word pleasant somehow like it will it will always look beautiful of course and is well thought out and meticulous but at the same time it always, I don't know, I can't describe the feeling that I get when I watch his films, but do you know what I mean? There's there's something to his, there's a tone to his films that I can't put my finger on, but it is, de- I don't get it, I haven't gotten it anywhere else. Yeah, I do sort of know what you mean, and it is hard to put, quite put your finger on it. Um, though I think some of the films you haven't seen me challenge that a okay. little bit. Um, some of his movies are just really dark and, and bleak and, okay. and dirty. Um I think part of it might be because I really think that Miyazaki puts what's most important for him is the animation first. So if he were making something too frenetic or too, um, uh, just not quite the right pace or tone, it might compromise what the animation looks like. I've, now that you say that, I wonder if maybe the, the word I'm looking for and, or the words I'm looking for, um, it comes out as a tone, but what it ultimately could be summed up as is uh, uh, care in presentation, like taking a great deal of care. Like I feel like I'm in good hands because he's taken such care of the film and he wants to be very careful in his, in his presentation. Like if you get something that's too frenetic, uh, people might not be able to appreciate how much you've put into it. Yeah. And I don't mean to say he's saying like, look at what I've done. It's more just like I took, time to put a lot of effort into this world and this is what i'm presenting to you yeah and i think the other thing that might play into that too is is the the emotion that every one of his films mostly evokes is wonder uh which i think no matter who you are when you watch a miyazaki film you i mean you feel like a kid Mm-hmm. in a lot of ways uh so even even his dark more bleak films i think has that to some extent because they're so creative there's so much imagination uh and i don't know it's it's and that i think that goes into uh that idea that he was someone who was a specific person uh who wrote movies and made movies that were a very different perspective um but I think what may be more important than sort of male or female is that uh, he had, a, I mean, he had a sense of uh, like a, a childlike uh, wonderment and um, 
and I think that always comes through and, and I think that might be part of that as well. There's a, a thing that Siskel and Ebert would often say, and Ebert really would spearhead this idea that like in fantasy films or even sci-fi movies, he always really valued this, a sense of wonder is what he would always come back to. And, and, uh, and I remember watching the Siskel and Ebert review of, I believe, Jurassic Park, a movie that I really liked at the time. And as time has gone on, I like less, but I still appreciate certain aspects of it, certainly the spectacle of it. But I remember he said that, like, what bothered him was that, you know, the, these special effects are amazing and you're watching these gargantuan creatures that we've only ever talked about and seen, like, depicted in, you know, stop motion animation uh, and that sort of thing. And now they seem very feasible. And aside from that moment where you see the Brachiosaurus, like, there is no sense of wonder. And I remember as a kid, it bothered me. It's like, it's like yeah, these dinosaurs are going to eat them. How can you have a sense of wonder when you're like so scared and panicked and there's action and all that sort of thing. Um, and then as I got older, I saw other films like alien, which I think always has a sense of wonder, even though you're terrified. And it sounds like that's, that's what you were talking about with even some of his bleaker films that you can still have such a command of tone and have the, have the audience like sort of on the edge of its seat or maybe even a little frightened or intimidated and still have them just be in awe of what they are seeing. Yeah. The one last thing about Kiki that I, I wanted to bring up is probably my favorite part of the movie is uh, Phil Hartman's uh, performance. Hmm. He, he's uh, the sidekick cat. Uh, and it's just a, an amazing uh, comedic performance. So, uh, we glossed over this, but are, are you mostly, have you mostly watched these with the English dub? Yeah, I, I wanted to bring up that question to both of you because I think it's a contentious question for anyone who watches anime, uh, is English or Japanese. Uh, I've seen a lot of them both ways, and um, I, I've tried to mix it up as, as much as possible. Uh, if I watch one of them with my wife, she wants to see it in English, which I totally understand. And, and really, I, I'm sort of on the fence on the question. Uh, the one thing I that sort of eased my mind about it, of course, I want to be a purist, but the subtitles is a translation too. So you're going to still lose something. Uh, and with animation, because you don't need to worry about matching the mouths, it's not as, mm-hmm. as awkward or jarring. Uh, some of the films that are more Japanese, uh, and by that I mean the characters are obviously Japanese and it has a lot of heavy themes of Japan and, uh, and things like that. It is a little weird to, to, to watch it with an English, uh, mm-hmm. cast. Um, but I think in, in some of the films, including something like Kiki, uh, one thing I, Disney, I think handles a lot of the productions, the U S productions of the Ghibli films. And I, I think overall they do a, a good job at not just stunt casting, uh, and, uh, casting, people in in the english uh dubbed versions that make sense for the characters hmm. uh so overall it, it might be blasphemous i don't know um but i i'm far and away okay with the with english uh i, I think the best versions. thing we've said about this is that when i think about the miyazaki movies that i've seen that we're talking about in most cases i don't remember which Mm-hmm. I don't remember if they were, I think that means that they're good movies. If yeah. that didn't stand out to me. For sure. I do think that like, you know, if you watch a live action, uh, film, uh, uh, foreign film and it's dubbed into English, that bothers me because like may it, I might view it as 
kind of acceptable in the case of like Das Boot, where all the actors did their own English dubbing. So it's like, okay, so they at least can try to match their own performance, but that's, it's not a guarantee. And at the same time, like how they're saying something might not match the facial expression. Whereas I think in, an, in animation, that's less of an issue, you know? Like when you're, you know, when you're uh, watching a, a, a foreign film and you see like, okay, here's the subtitle, you know, and the, for, for me, always the first 10 to 15 minutes is a little tough because like there's a subtitle. I, I'm trying to remember the tone of voice and there's the facial expression. Does all that go together? Yes, that's a good performance. Okay, moving on. <laughs> uh, well, you don't have you don't have to do that in animation because the. Or rather, you can't do that because the facial expression is simply what the animator wanted it to be. And maybe they modeled it on, like, the actor's performance or something like that. Who's to say? But I'm, I'm okay with either one. Uh, well, I, think, I, don't think it, I don't think you have to be a purist about this one. I mean, I think typically just the way all animated films are made is you have the animation first. And mm-hmm. then the actors are recording to the animation. So, yeah. yeah. And after a certain point, I mean, didn't Miyazaki make his films knowing that they're going to get international distribution anyway. I, I, I have to imagine that. Yeah. Okay. I know he did. Um, I don't know how direct of an, of like, for example, the, the Disney produced uh, English language films. They had their own director and producers and things like that. I think sometimes they may have written the screenplay or at least adapted the screenplay in some ways. But um, so I don't know how much of an active role Miyazaki had, but I would highly doubt that because the 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 Disney animators like John Lasseter, who's a mm-hmm. huge Miyazaki fan, I, I just can't imagine that they would shut him out of the process completely. Yeah. Wasn't there a story? Was it Miyazaki? There's a story about him and Harvey Weinstein. Maybe maybe it wasn't Miyazaki. Maybe it was somebody else. I don't remember yeah. exactly. But like somebody who Weinstein wanted to like cut out some of the film, and I think Miyazaki like it, it might, yes. It might, I don't remember. If it was yes, him. no, it is. Uh, Gosh, I can't remember which film it was. It was one of the producers of the film sent uh, Weinstein a sword yeah, uh, with a note that said no cuts. <laughs> I, I can't remember which film it was. It may have been Spirited Away. Mm. I think it was Spirited Away, but I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that's a power play. <laughs> uh Natalia, you said you'd seen Porco Porco Rosso. Yes, but I I, I remember Rosso. very little yeah. about it. I remember enjoying myself a lot, but also feeling like, and this is not a slight on the film, but I don't remember. I remember thinking it was beautiful and enjoying the story, but not feeling like I was watching anything of real weight. Yeah, because I feel like I'd remember it more. Like I remember The Wind Rises, and I certainly remember Spirited Away. But I saw Porco Rosso not long ago, mm-hmm. and I don't remember much about it. It's fun. It's it's funner to think about the movie when uh, you translate Porco Rosso to Crimson Pig, right? <laughs> Which is yeah. the Italian, uh, the, or the translation from Italian. Uh, speaking of uh, dialogue, uh, this is a movie that takes place in Italy with Italian characters. So why are they talking Japanese exactly? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is like one of those cases where an English track doesn't doesn't really bother me at all um and michael keaton voices the the lead sure does so it's it's pretty good casting there as well um i think this is uh an outlier for miyazaki as well uh it this is the movie that really feels the most directly inspired by films that came before it uh it is um it's it's uh feels like a, a tribute to 
the cinema of the 1940s uh, film noir and World War II films. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Casablanca in yeah. it. Um, uh, it. It's it's basically about a, a pilot who, after a near death experience, is transformed into a pig. I, I can't remember exactly why. It's it's a little it's a little odd, uh, especially since people seem to be pretty much okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, this is one of those movies that I mentioned where the only ones that were the main character isn't a young person as well. There's sort of a sidekick character who's a young girl who's the daughter of, uh, of an airplane, I think airplane designer, maybe a pilot who was killed during World War uh, World War One, I, I guess it would be. Um, and she's sort of this becomes the sidekick of Porco Rosso uh, in helping him design his plane that will take on this uh, American pilot who's sort of brash comes in uh, and there's uh, that creates some some weird things and I think <laughs> there's a lot of Kiki's delivery service is another one where there's a lot of sort of weird stuff going on with young girls um, uh, it, it might just mean being a pervert I don't know <laughs> but uh, Porco Rosso like one of the main main story stories is, is this young girl I don't think I don't remember if they say exactly how old she is but she's young she's not 18 for sure she's probably not even 16 uh and the the sort of climax comes with uh if porco wins uh this airplane battle he has with the american then his deaths will be paid if he wins he gets the girl basically (laughs) uh and, and there's a lot of characters who uh, fun uh, uh, sexual attraction on onto this young girl. Hmm. Uh, Kiki's is another one that's a little weird. There's uh, notice uh, there's a since she's a witch flying around on a broomstick. There's with a f- very flowing skirt. Uh, there's some weird upskirt stuff going on. Hmm. And that one, my wife actually pointed out to me. So I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna think I'm just a total pervert on noticing that. But uh, <laughs> it might it, it probably is that I don't know. I think we should move on to Princess Mononoke. Yeah. Because um, that, that, uh, that uh, let's just get away from what we were just talking about. Yeah. Right? Why not? <laughs> I don't know. I think we should, uh, I think we should linger there's on. There's a lot of bestiality in Mononoke. No, there's not. <laughs> uh, but no, I, what, by the way, what year are we in at this point? Uh, 97 is Mononoke. Okay. There's actually like a five year, I think, gap between Pocoroso and Mononoke. So, well, I mean, um, but it's not, there's not like there's a lack of credits there. It's just that it's, there's a well. I guess there is one. There's one credit, a short okay. that he made in well, between the two. I think the, was, these films take a long time to make too. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that's part of it. So yeah, Princess Mononoke. I'll talk about it. Yeah, because um, it's you not say my like favorite. it's a threat. Well, it's not. <laughs> it's not my favorite because I do feel like it's so heavy-handed. Uh, I mean, that said, it's um, beautiful and grand and action-packed and kind of. There's an, I think it's unabashedly like nerdy in a way that I probably didn't care that much for as a college student. That I would might if I watched it again now, I might uh, be more okay with that kind of just like giving yourself completely over to like fantasy, uh, like you know weirdness and complications and people taking things very seriously that are kind of silly, <laughs> you know. But um, it's really about a guy who. Well, again, it's been a long time, so uh, correct me if I'm missing things. But the basic thing is it's a guy who joins forces with the forest against the humans who are not th- not through negligence, but are like 
actively killing the forest. Yeah, I I see it as a little. I mean, what I think the the biggest strength of Mononoke is is that it. I see him more as a mediator um, between the two, uh, as well as the Mononoke character, uh, whose name isn't Mononoke. That's a title, not a name. Uh-huh. Uh, her name is San. Uh, they both have, they both have stakes in protecting the nature. Um, but I think what it it does really well is you get a lot of multiple perspectives from both sides. You have humans that are evil and you have humans that are good. Uh, and even the evil humans are, they're not evil just because they're purely evil. They're, they're just making the wrong selfish decisions uh and then it makes me think you know i, I say that i might like it more now and i think in thinking about it, i don't know how i never this never occurred to me before but i like avatar which is yeah largely the exact same story i was gonna say yeah. i wonder if he was at all and i don't even mean this facetiously inspired by fern gully which came out a few years before and uh oh, I, don't I don't know, know. um yeah but uh maybe yeah maybe that's the maybe last they, rainforest david oh okay <laughs> maybe the fact that I like Avatar means that I need to rewatch Princess Mononoke and I would like it more. Yeah, maybe. And then and then there, on the other side, there there are bands of, of uh animals that are trying to, to work this out and, 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 and are good and there are uh sides of, of nature that are that are bad and, and kill humans not not necessarily just to protect themselves, but uh, and then there's a lot of uh, demons and things like that that come into play too. That kind of work both sides as well. Uh, I I get the oh, the heavy handed uh, your view on that, but I like the complexity in the characters in this film, and and I think that um, while Nauska uh, also has uh, some complex themes in the the nature versus human. Uh, battle that happens uh i i think that uh mononoke it it feels more developed um obviously this uh, he's by this point miyazaki's on the top of his game uh and and can tell a complex story um much better than than he could when he was just starting out at least in my opinion um the other thing i like about um this film is uh a lot of it's sort of strange, but a lot of Miyazaki's characters are princesses or like heirs to, uh, to, you know, to civilizations and, and things like that. But, um, this, uh, the, the princess San in, in Mononoke, uh, she just was like a total badass. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Um, she feels very much an antithesis to your, typical disney princess and i think when you're thinking of animation and princesses the the classic disney princesses are what come to mind first and and san is just like just none of none of those qualities um she's i mean even though the the main character in the film is is a a young man uh she's really the the person who takes control of a lot of the the plot um and it's not this young man saving this girl it's it's the other way around uh in a lot of cases uh even though the man is still important uh Mm -hmm. in the film um yeah and you haven't seen it i have not seen it can i tell a story about when i saw it sure it was when we lived together okay uh and i was uh uh, watching it on the tv in my bedroom yeah i was home alone it was at night 
I paused the movie, walked over to the fridge, right? Didn't right. turn the lights on at any point in this. Yeah. All right, prepare to be grossed out. Ugh. I went to the fridge, grabbed uh, a snack in the in the form of um, some 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 string cheese uh, that I had that I had purchased at some point. Uh. Again, didn't never turn the lights on. Sat back down, started the movie again, put the piece of string cheese in my mouth, and immediately spit it out and flipped on the lights, and it was moldy. It like covered in mold, and I didn't know. Uh, I think we know why you don't like this movie. You got some, you got some serious connections to this. Yeah, apparently, I have not been able to separate the two experiences. So, Meanwhile, uh, when you saw Avatar, oh, it was fr- the string cheese was with fresh yeah. and yeah. delicious. Yeah. All right, let's move on to Spirited Away. Okay. Everyone loves this one. Yeah, and we've all, we've all seen it, right? Yes. Uh, and this does, I'd say, certainly for people of our generation, this does seem to be the entry point for him. Maybe because it won the Oscar, um, but yeah, it's uh, that was certainly mine, mm-hmm. and uh, I did not know what I. A friend of mine said, "Hey, let's watch this," and I was like, "I don't." I, all I knew was like, "Oh yeah, that that won best uh, animated film that year." Interesting, um, and uh, did not know what I was getting myself into. And uh, boy, oh boy, I I love it so much. Even mm-hmm. though it's it's so much of what you guys were talking have been talking about, like. Uh, there's so much complexity to the rules where it's like, oh, there's this now. Why? I, who gives a shit? Like, because it's a fantasy but, film and that's okay. But here's where it's different from Nausicaa or Princess Mononoke, which have those rules as part of, uh, as being part of the fantasy or, or at least largely related to the fantasy genre. I think the thing about Spirited Away is that ultimately none of that actually matters because mm-hmm. everything you're really seeing is, I think, uh, metaphor or just sort of um, what's the other word I'm looking for? Well, it's like uh, the Wizard of Oz sort of thing. Right, yeah, yeah. yes. That's like a every great characters in, in the fantasy have some sort of tie to the real world. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. a little bit of that. Uh, it's like, a, yeah, I guess it's sort of expressionistic, expressionistic uh, in that way. So um, I don't get bothered by the fact that it's complex because I know it's really about um, the, 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 the emotions and the psychology of what Chihiro is is going through and that's what's being played out. And, and I think the movie never, never loses sight of Chihiro as, as its uh, main character. And I don't mean to imply that I was bothered by it. I actually found it somewhat invigorating like kept me on my toes. And it very much puts you in the same position as her where she's just finding out all this for the first time. And, you know, I mean, it's very Alice in Wonderland where just everybody, and it's a little, I mean, it's a little creepy and a little disturbing and, and kind of for me intimidating because everybody knows the rules, but you and like, think about how frightening that can be. And, um, and especially because she's young, she's little, there's just large things that could destroy her at any, at any point walking around all the time, Mm -hmm. disembodied heads rolling around and bouncing around and like a villain who's, giant and has a mouth that could swallow her whole and stuff like it's just so it's so fun and it seems to really celebrate the fantastical uh and yeah i just i love it so much could you imagine if guillermo del toro made this as a as a horror film live action just like think of doug jones as the uh (laughs) as the boiler room guy like man that would be cool (laughs) that'd be pretty great yes yeah uh, and obviously uh, a friend he, of the show, Je- Doug Jones, that's by the right. Way. Uh, uh, that's not my thing to say. That's yours. So. That's true. Yeah. Uh, 
Like, you know your place. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say something, but no. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, okay. Now that we've gotten ourselves to another uncomfortable place, should we move on to Howl's Moving Castle? Uh, Sure. Well, hang on. I I probably want to try and... I do want to try and and get into some stuff. Because you did mention... uh, This is something that uh, we talked about at More Than One Lesson... Uh, when talking about Alice in Wonderland, but it certainly seems to apply to Miyazaki, even in the films that I that I haven't seen, just based on what you're saying. Like, uh, often young girls, often with some kind of noble heritage of some, you know, uh, and in that way, uh, Josh and I were talking about uh, – that in a lot of um, fairy tales and such, and in a lot of Disney films, um, although at the moment they're all uh, escaping me, but there's something more interesting about uh, a girl going on an adventure. Certainly because a lot of fairy tales like are from an older time when if a boy went on an adventure, well, that's just what boys do. But mm-hmm. if a girl did, it's because she's doing something she's kind of breaking free and doing her own thing. And because she lives in a society that is constantly saying, no, don't do that. That's not how you behave. And certainly I feel like a society, maybe like Japan, where there's certainly traditional, there's like tradition is a huge thing. And whether, whether like the traditions are upheld, there's still this idea of like, there's an expectation of how people behave. And I feel like, he was very interested in subverting that. And I feel like, you know, with, uh, Chihiro, her parents kind of push her to the side and don't really think about her very much. Like she has a role to play in her family and it is not an important one. And then she's constantly being ordered around and it's just her basically becoming empowered by just saying like, if I don't stand up for myself, it sounds like nobody will. So I guess I better do this. And that's something that I find very invigorating. And in doing so, I feel like it really embraces certain aspects of like fairy tales that I think are very uh, effective. And so I think that's one of the reasons the film is so powerful and why Chihiro is such a powerful protagonist. Like years ago, we did a, a listener generated list of, the best characters of all time. And Chihiro was on there, um, which I find fascinating. So anyway, I just wanted to put that out there because it's something that I enjoy thinking about, especially considering all of the cool, creepy creatures that are around her that, I mean, like my neighbor Totoro, like you think of Totoro first, you don't think of the two young girls, even Mm -hmm. though those are good characters as well. But the fact that this, this sort of blank protagonist, protagonist at the center yeah. uh, who's reacting to the things around her is what you can really latch onto. I think is a uh, testament to the power of the movie. And it's her, like I said a moment ago, like everybody knows the rules, but her, which can, by the way, apply in her regular life mm-hmm. and this fantasy yeah. world. And it's her refusal to play by the rules in both worlds that actually m- causes progress to be made. For example, it's just, um, like for example, when the like the 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 big crap monster or whatever that uh, <laughs> I think it's called a, a stink demon, stink demon. That's the one. <laughs> um, uh, like when it shows up, the way that she interacts with it and the way like she doesn't know. Everyone's just like 
oh, we, we don't want this thing around. We hate it. And she's the only one who, yes, she acknowledges that it stinks. Mm-hmm. And yes, she doesn't necessarily want to do this, but she still behaves in. And they understand you need to react politely, but she actually sees more underneath. Mm-hmm. And rather than try and just be polite and get it out of here, she engages it on a deeper level because that's all she knows how to do. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, like wonderful things happen. And so it's just a, yeah, I, I, I do love Spirited Away, and I, frankly, it, it, in talking about it, of course, I want to watch it again, but perhaps I will channel that energy, energy and watch more just other Miyazaki films. Because I've already seen Spirited Away like four times. Have you seen House Moving Castle? I have not. Neither have I. Okay. This is my least favorite of his movies. Oh, watch out. Yeah, it's... Um, it's a moving castle. I know. You've completed the castle trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about... Uh, I, I think it was Mononoke, the the sort of um the 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 backstory and the plot you felt was was too heavy that is definitely the 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 what keeps house moving castle back um there are some fun uh quirky moments in it and a few uh really interesting characters and when it when it wants to just sort of be a small fun picture it works really well but there's like there's the so much like backstory put on the movie. There's this like war that's going on in the background, which they talk about a lot, but you don't really learn much about, uh, that just sort of loses me. Um, there are too many characters in it. Um, even though a lot of them, uh, of course, Miyazaki makes great characters and a lot of them are great. Um, yeah, it just gets really bogged down. Uh, I, th- I think we can move on, but I like the idea that there's someone listening whose favorite Miyazaki movie is House <laughs> Castle, and we're really pissing them off. I, but well, I know it, a lot of people talk I about how gorgeous happen. it was, specifically the castle itself. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting design, and it the way it moves is 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 fun. I mean, that's the big thing about it, right? It moves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you got to <laughs> nail that. And, and he did. Does but. it move like the whole thing moves like the island on Lost or it moves inside itself like uh, Hogwarts? It has legs. I see. So it actually walks. Okay. Unlike the film, it sounds like. <laughs> All right, let's move on <laughs> to Ponyo, which I also have not seen. Yeah, uh, Ponyo's, uh, it's, a, it's a good, decent, it's another one of the more lightweight um, fairs it, it it's uh, about a young fish who uh, wants to be a human uh, it's little very mermaid. inspired yeah mm-hmm. Little Mermaid which I alluded to before uh, and the one thing that I think it, it does well that breaks it away from just being a remake of The Little Mermaid is uh, Ponyo's father uh, who in the English uh, version is played by Liam Neeson uh, which is interesting though the that's one of them where the design doesn't really match the voice and is a mm. little weird um, to me. Um, but her father is sort of, I, I guess, is was formerly a human, but now is basically the ruler of this underworld, uh, underwater world. Uh, and he, it's it, it becomes really a movie about the emotional stakes of of your kids moving away, hmm. uh, which hmm. is uh, again for Miyazaki, who who deals so much in perspectives of young people. Uh, is sort of a different turn on on a lot of his themes. So uh, there's and, and again, like Kiki, it's it's sort of the inverse of that. It's it's about even though he's definitely not the main character, he's he's a supporting role. But a lot that I take out from him is is that perspective. Uh, and you see him sort of change at, 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 at 
most of the film, he's sort of this overbearing father figure uh, who doesn't want his daughter to leave. Um, but by the end, you can see that, yeah, he actually has emotions and he's just scared and doesn't want to lose her. So I think it, it actually plays on that pretty well. Do, is that is that a I mean, how many of how many of Miyazaki's films do you feel like uh, are him exploring something within himself? I don't know if he had children. I assume he did. And maybe this is a thing that that he specifically dealt with. Do you know if there's any element there? Wish I did. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's no, what, that's that's what makes show. you an enthusiast. Yeah. yeah. David. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I mean, you. I couldn't imagine all of his movies feel so personal mm-hmm. uh, and feel so much from his voice that I can only imagine that, okay. that they did. All right. We'll oh. move on. I don't think it's so interesting. I, uh, I, I didn't know that, uh, Ponyo was that recent for some reason. I thought that's when he did it like in the nineties. Nope. That's all. Uh, oh wait. Yeah. So let's move on to the last one. All right. I the saw wind that one. Rises. We all one. saw this one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Tyler, what are your thoughts? Well, as you know, it uh, that year it barely missed my top ten. It was very high up uh, because, but honestly, and I feel bad saying this, it was gorgeous. I thought it was beautiful, and I thought it was very meditative. But more than anything, what fascinated me about it was all the stuff around it. It was the knowledge that it was his last film by an, by his own admission, and that though there were fan, uh, fantasy sequences in it, that like that. The man who made these, who's known for fantasy, who's known for like very crazy things and, and, and strange imagery and all that, that he would choose this, a true story, and one that one could say is ugh, a little not great uh, as far as, you know, somebody's uh, almost a sad story, almost a tragic story, that he would have this be his final film like you want to talk about personal when you see something like that and you see how far he's deviating as far as content uh and then saying this is the note I'm going out on as a director just the the mind reels and that's one of the things that got me so fascinated about it it's still a great movie and but I feel bad that my level of engagement is is that steeped in the, in the context about the, the release of the film. Well, and it's a story too, that doesn't necessarily lend itself to animation. Yeah. I, you could, I mean, you totally reasonably make this movie, you know, with live action and there would obviously be some changes. I think some of the, the most fun parts of the film are these fantasy, these dream sequences yeah. that Jiro has none about sushi though, which is, <laughs> which is a little strange. Watch out. Uh, I think I made that. <laughs> I think I made that joke on Twitter uh, after I saw the movie. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just a beautiful, delicate movie. It is It is a little sadder than a lot of his movies. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that may be the story of the film and, and knowing that it's most likely, and, and by now we know his last film, well, I guess it may not be, but yeah, he could pull uh, Jay Z unless he dies in the next eight weeks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's, yeah. Ed McMahon, by the way, died six years ago. Okay, I was going to say he and Ed okay. McMahon have a duel to the death. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, I mean, I see what you're saying. It, it, uh, that this seems like an odd final film because it is dissimilar in so many ways to his other other films. But um, if you think about uh, uh, I'm going to compare this to a movie that I don't know if other people have compared it to, um, Jean Favreau's Chef, which is a much lighter mm-hmm. sort of thing, but you know, 
you know, Miyazaki on the one hand is putting a, a button on his career. John Favreau was trying to refine himself, refine his career, yeah. making chefs, making chef. Both of them did so by tackling stories about creative people in in fields other than film uh, as a way to maybe explore themselves or make a point to themselves about themselves and the the co-opting of that art uh yeah i did find the one second a day portion of the wind rises a little jarring (laughs) that's a little weird when when uh when jiro's using snapchat to uh (laughs) yeah yeah it's it is interesting and it makes you wonder because that's the thing is I think that's an interesting comparison to make, and so let's let's follow that through. John Favreau is clearly a little bit, for lack of a better term, disillusioned with the way his career went, or at least his his interaction with the big Hollywood studio system. And this is for him maybe like a way of exploring and maybe meditating on what where his career went and where it's going to go. And so in that same way. Like, what does this say about Miyazaki? Like that he he feels connection with this guy who just wants to do this wonder, this thing that he loves, and like who's coming along and saying, no, no, we're going to use this for our own ends. I don't know. I mean, when you think about it, it's like, is he kind of you know you hear about that story about the Weinstein's, right? Who are a is, good perpetual villain? The Wind Rises is not because Jiro was a real guy. Mm-hmm. The Wind Rises is not an apologia for this guy. Right. I mean, in, I mean, it's always it explores how could this person be so dedicated to making essentially murder machines, um, but it doesn't it doesn't excuse that. At the same right. time, it right. does. Uh, I yeah. think the movie does is upfront about the way that um, that Jiro is sometimes like sort of intentionally ignorant or solipsistic about uh, what what his life is and what he is doing. Do you think maybe it could be sort of a meditation in taking himself to task? And in, in it, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but like this idea of, yes, here I am just devoting myself to making these movies. Meanwhile, the world around me is falling apart. Like, you know, for let's go to like the environment thing, which he feels very passionately oh, about. Sure, like, yeah. like, here I am making my little movies about it when I could be actively doing something about it. Yeah. Rather than trying be, to just uh, rehabilitating river otters in Paraguay. Or exactly. That's specific to something. Yeah. There are people who do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so, uh, those otters need to be rehabilitated by the way. Like they just, you know, they just got out of the joint. Just think, Miyazaki's <laughs> going to listen to this and he's going to, he's just going to feel so selfish. He's just, he's just going to feel so bad. He's going to yeah. book a plane. I think. Yeah. Think about all the river otters yeah. that were lost while he was doodling pig pilots. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's our show, everybody. <laughs> it does feel like it does feel appropriate that that uh, the phrase "doodling pig pilots" would show up when talking about Miyazaki. Um, but yeah, and so I mean, it is. It's kind of invigorating to think about the wind rises and what he is trying to say about himself, about the artistic process, um, about like taking artists to task, maybe for like maybe taking more personal responsibility for the art that they're doing and, and what it is and how people might be using it. It's, it's such a fascinating film because like you said, it does, it doesn't cry out for animation and that this is, you know, his swan song is just, 
it's fascinating. And of course the film itself is just gorgeous. Yeah. Um, and it has that nice, this, uh, delicate, that the word who, I forget which one of you said delicate, delicate, but it's a great word. to describe. Neither one of us said delicate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that the scene early on in the film, uh, with the earthquake and tsunami, I mean, just like uh, Ghibli, I think Takahata actually does, did that, uh, does that maybe a, a lot, a little bit more, but, uh, the sort of nature taking on, um, like a otherworldly uh, sort of representation, like the earthquake in in, in the wind rises is uh, it's like indescribable and like amazing and, and not what earthquakes are like, but you kind of understand that I've never been in an earthquake, but, uh, but that, I mean, you kind of understand what, what, what the characters are going through, even though it's nothing like what an earthquake actually is like. It's a bit humbling to be in an earthquake. Cause in that moment where I was like, there's nothing I can do. I can't hover above the earth. <laughs> I'm stuck here. Yeah. It's rough yeah. stuff. Um, well, I think that's, I, are there any, are there any final thoughts? Uh, and I'll, I'll go to you, Aaron. Are there any final thoughts about Miyazaki? Like, do you have any, let's say this, do you have any advice or any f- thoughts for people who maybe haven't seen any of his films mm-hmm. and are curious? It seems odd that they would make it all the way through this episode having seen none of his films, but I guess I did. Uh, so I just lied about those three, by the way. Um, you know, do you have any thoughts for, for them? Well, um, I mean, luckily he, he does have a fairly small um, amount of work in terms of feature films go. So, uh, I mean, if, if someone is interested, it doesn't really take a lot of time or effort to, um, to go through all of his movies. Um, and they're all pretty readily available now. Uh, I, th- I think most of them were released on Blu-ray within the last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, spirited away. Uh, I think it was just announced that it's going to be released on Blu-ray too. Uh, so you don't have to buy that $150 bootleg copy on, on Amazon, <laughs> which I, I, I did. Oh. I did think about, <laughs> Oh, jeez. <okay>. Oh, <laughs> no, I didn't do it, okay. but I did think about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, what's great about his movies is is they they do speak to important themes, um, but most of them are just a lot of fun, um, and and they're not they're not movies you have to to really dive into, uh, but you can, yeah. uh, and. Um, yeah, Spirit of the Way is, is my favorite, like I said, uh, and I think his just most engrossing. And I, I, I think that that would be a good one to start with. Um, but, yeah. Well, this was uh, a lot of fun. Thank you for for flying all the way to Los Angeles just to do this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You guys are paying for that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now you can find Only me and Tyler. Only buy more of our uh, Lord of the Rings commentary. <laughs> there you go. You can so. you can find me and Tyler at uh, battleshipretention.com. In fact, you can find Aaron there, too. Uh, uh, all sorts of things written yeah. by uh, by all of us. By the time this comes out, you'll... Uh, I'm, in recording time, I'll be at Ebert Fest next week. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Um, by the time this this is up, then you Who knows would what? have already seen all of my uh, coverage on that. Yeah. So, and uh, also, by the way, there are you did write a series of articles about Miyazaki. I did. Oh yeah. So of each of his, about each of well, his films. It was about Ghibli. Um, oh okay. So yeah. there's there's even more. There there's some Takahata movies in there. There's um and a few others of the the one time directors in there too. Those films, uh, if you want to watch all of Ghibli, those the movies that aren't directed by either. 
Hayao Miyazaki and or uh, Isao Takahata definitely feel more minor. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, I, really for me, it's 1A and 1B between Takahata and Miyazaki. Uh, if you haven't seen Grave of the Fireflies, if you haven't seen Princess Kaguya, which just came out last year, which was Takahata's last film, I love that movie too. Uh, so there, there's definitely more to see just than, than uh, Miyazaki. All right, so you can find that at BattleshipRetention.com. You can email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow me on Twitter at DaveyPretension. Uh, you can follow Tyler at TylerPretension. Tyler's other podcast is called More Than One Lesson. What might be going on there in two months? <laughs> Who knows? Um, a series of guest hosts because Josh is out of town at the time. Okay. So uh, look for that. My other podcast is called Hey, Watch This. It's about TV. Uh, I do it with uh, Paul Goebel. Um, I don't know what... We might be talking about Hannibal. Hannibal will be back by the time you're hearing this. All right. Um, so uh, that's what's going on with that. Uh, Aaron, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, Battleship Pretension, of course. Uh, I write there occasionally. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at PinkstonAA. And I also have a second Twitter account where I just post all of the movies that I watch. Uh, and that's AP underscore watches. All right. Well, thanks again for being here. This is fun. Oh, yeah. Come to Chicago. Bring the board. We can do it there. You can <laughs> okay. have a remote. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> um, and thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.